And the conclusion I drew from that is, oh, I like to create, not maintain. I need to do something where I can make new things, not just maintain things that somebody else has already set up or that I set up and now just have to care for. Thomas Frank is a podcaster, blogger, YouTuber, and now Nebular. <laughs> that is one of the best-known people in the world of productivity, with millions of subscribers to his name and a long-standing reputation of excellence. So how did a student blog become an entire content career? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. When you meet someone new, and the question about what you do for a living comes up, what is your go-to answer at this point in your life? <laughs> uh, at this point, you know, it usually takes a bit of an explanation, but I start off saying that I create videos on self-improvement and productivity. I used to say I was a YouTuber, but now we make videos for Nebula first, so I don't think YouTuber ah. is fair. Ah, okay, that's I, I like I like that way of Everyone has their own unique way of avoiding the term YouTuber. I like this one. I'm going to I'm going to steal that one. What do we say like we're we're Nebulars? <laughs> We're a nebulous collective of creators, I guess. <laughs> so let's start from the absolute very beginning. Where were you born? Uh, I was actually born on an Air Force base that no longer exists near Merced, California. It was called Castle Air Force Base, and I think it was decommissioned and demolished a few years after my parents were in the Air Force. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, and then my parents had decided to move back to Iowa, where my dad's from. So for two weeks while they prepped, I actually slept in a drawer. I've been told that my mom did not close the drawer into the dresser while I was sleeping. But, you know, jury's still out on that one. And then we moved to Iowa. <laughs> okay, that, that sounds um, interesting. Right, <laughs> what? I don't even know how to connect from that. How was your childhood like? I mean, it was your like, it was your normal, typical, every, you know, suburban childhood, pretty much. You know, my parents met in the Air Force and then they had me after they got married and uh, they decided to quit the Air Force. And I guess you can just do that if you have a kid. So they moved back to where my dad's family's from. So for the first four years of my life, I was basically just in the neighborhood with all my grandparents and aunts and uncles. They're kind of all stuck in the same place. So that was interesting. And then I think I was four years old. My mom and dad got really into a specific type of Christianity, and my dad was like, I'm going to go to seminary and become a pastor. So we moved two hours away from there, and he went to seminary for two years, uh, only to realize it was very much not for him. He does not have the personality <laughs> to be a pastor. But we were there, and then we kind of stayed in that area, which was Des Moines, Iowa, uh, until I graduated high school. What sort of, I'm really, knowing you today, I'm really curious, what sort of school kid were you? Uh, okay, so my parents, this is very important, my parents informed me that I was to get A's and nothing but A's, and I would be grounded or punished if I did not get A's. Oh boy. So it wasn't it wasn't like your typical, you have to get perfect grades, you got 99 out of 100, you know, why didn't you get 100? But it definitely was like, if I got anything less than an A minus on a report card, I was in trouble for it. So, and they tried to do the same thing with my brother, but... Um, my brother's incredibly intelligent, but he does not really like to sit around in schools and do homework. And I think I just had the temperament to where I do either I like to do it or I'll do it just because I'm afraid of authority. I don't know which one it is, but uh, <laughs> I typically got pretty good grades, mostly because of parental pressure. Oof. That sounds, <laughs> well, sounds rough. It sounds this, really difficult. The, 
This may explain some things about me. Um, in addition to this requirement that I get all A's, my father would have my brother and I read books, like science books, outside of school and write book reports. And he was always much harsher at grading them than our teachers were. And then on the physical side, he basically like forced us to do almost any combat sport you can think of. So like boxing, wrestling, jujitsu, judo, weightlifting, like all of it, because I think he was just trying to turn us into like all around capable men. But what it meant is like, when I tell this story, it seems like my childhood was basically boot camp, And there was a little bit of that, but it was also like a typical, you know, fun American upbringing. I had plenty of time to go out and play. Like, I don't really complain about it and I don't look back on it with any bitterness. Um, in fact, my first few years of school, until like I think third grade, which I'm, I'm like when I was eight years old, because I don't know what it translates to for uh, you in Spain. But my first three years of school, I was actually homeschooled. And it was kind of awesome because I only went to school for two hours a day. And that's because my mom, like she had a daycare. She had to work for the school system at one point. You know, she didn't have a whole lot of time to teach us. So the way she taught us is we would basically sit down at a desk and there was just a stack of books and a to-do list and she would spend some time teaching, but a lot of it was just, you got to work through your assignments. And once you're done, you're done. You can go outside and play. So, you know, time pressure, I would get my stuff done as fast as possible. And um, I think the curriculum was kind of rigorous because I, when I got into public school, I did just fine. But I was able to go out and, you know, play with my brother like noon. And then all the other kids wouldn't get back from school until 3.30 or 4. So th did you had any time for leisure activities at all? Or was this just your life? I mean, tons. Like, like I said, I was only in school for two hours a day when I was homeschooled. And then, uh, you know, I went to public school, I think it was like third grade. And, you know, the, the homework load just didn't seem that bad. So, you know, we came home and I remember growing up thinking my other friends had it so good because we would come home from school and sometimes our dad would require us to work out and do stuff in the gym or, you know, every single day we at least had a list of chores we had to do. I think this is like typical for kids growing up in like any time before now. But in high school, I remember most of my friends didn't have chores, didn't have any home responsibilities. Their parents just kind of let them do what they want. So me growing up, I'm like, oh, my parents are so strict. I have to do all this stuff. Can't go hang out with my friends until 430 because that's how long it takes to do the chores. But other than that, you know, I mean, I had plenty of time to do what I wanted to do and Looking back on it now, like it wasn't a perfect upbringing, but I do appreciate the fact that my parents worked to like instill a work ethic in me. Just trying to place myself in time as well. Was the internet a thing in your life at any point during this or did that happen later? Yeah. Oh, so the internet, let's see here. I'm trying to think of when I first got into the internet. I taught myself how to code HTML when I was 12 and that was an outcropping of uh, building websites with Yahoo GeoCities, I think when I was 11. So I don't, I'm not sure how much internet access I had before I was 11 at home, though my aunt had internet when I was like nine or 10. And I think that's kind of when I started using it. Before that, we had a very old computer with Windows 95. The only thing I remember about it is we had this game called Descent. And I don't know if you've ever played Descent, but it's like Doom, but it's a six axis joystick controlled ship game ah uh, yeah so I you know never know what direction you're facing you never know which way is down and i just remember being very terrified of it as a little kid 
<laughs> but yeah, I started getting into the internet when I was probably like 11 years old on my own computer. I got into a band called uh, Demon Hunter, which is like a Christian metal band because we grew up super Christian. And there was a forum on their website and people would hang out there and I got involved in that. And I remember there was a guy on the forum, he had the most amount of posts, which in my 11 year old brain equated to, okay, he's the coolest person on the forum. And in his little forum signature, he had uh, like a logo for another band called Zao. I'd never heard of this band before. And this was kind of like before it was easy to listen to music that you didn't own. You know, I, I didn't even know about Napster or Kazaa or anything before then, but I wanted to be cool on the forum. So I taught myself how to build a Yahoo GeoCities websites so I could build a fan site for this band. And I was very intimately aware of like what the fan site scene for this band looked like. And I ended up building the most comprehensive fan site on the internet. And the funny thing is I had never heard this band's music. <laughs> and like a while <laughs> later, my, my dad finally took me to the CD store. And sometimes they would have the CDs unwrapped so you could put them in like a sample CD player and listen to it before you buy it. And they finally did once for this band's like greatest hit CD. And I popped it in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't like their music. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so so I ended up building like the most comprehensive website on the internet for this band and I didn't even like them. But it was it was fun to build it and you know, I started wanting to make little customizations that you couldn't make with the GUI. So I started teaching myself HTML at 12 years old. There was like a website called WebMonkey which had HTML tutorials back then. So that's kind of how I got started uh, along really the path that I'm on now. But yeah, I had plenty, I had plenty of internet time. Um, I do remember though, like for internet and video games, especially video games, my parents had like a one hour limit per day. So I'd like squeeze as much time in it as possible. And then we'd have to go outside or do whatever. That is a great start. When it came time to figure out what to do for university, what did you decide on? What was your thought process for that? I actually knew when I went to university what I wanted to do, which ended up being completely wrong. <laughs> I wanted to go into what's called MIS, which is Management Information Systems. And that is a fancy term for basically like working in IT. Okay. And the reason I wanted to do that was growing up, my parents would try to like suggest things for me to do, but they were never pushy about it. Uh, in fact, they were very supportive about my whole university process, but they were so not involved. Like I remember some of my university friends were scared because they were they were worried about what their parents were going to say about their grades. And it was just so weird to me because I'm like, you're an adult. Why do they even get to see your grades? <laughs> but I guess it just uh, illustrates a difference in parenting styles. They would suggest like, oh, hey, we think you could be a good engineer. Maybe you should go in for electrical engineering or electronic engineering, which I never even saw a major like that. But I'm guessing it's some sort of in between electrical and computer engineering. In high school, I was in advanced classes, but I was very intimidated by calculus. And the only reason that I did well in calculus is our teacher had an insane extra extra credit policy, where if you found him in the hallways and said hi to him, you would get extra credit. It's the stupidest thing looking back on it. But I got so much extra credit in calculus from basically stalking my teacher and saying hi to him in the hallway that I got a B instead of like a D or a C. <laughs> and I attributed that to, oh, I'm just bad at calculus. I'm not cut out for math. So clearly I can't go out for engineering because, you know, I looked at the curriculum and they've got calculus two and differential equations and all these intimidating things. And, you know, side note, like realizing later, the reason that I didn't do well in calculus is because I didn't really work through the problems. I would go to the little math help area and literally do my homework next to the answer manual. And when I got hard, I would look at the answer. Terrible way to do it. And if I would have just worked hard at it, I think I could have done calculus. 
But, you know, I drew the conclusion that, hey, I'm bad at math, but uh, I like computers and I like making websites and stuff. And I also was in this organization called Business Professionals of America, which basically had all these conferences where you'd go and you'd, com you'd compete in different little competitions. Like there was a business plan competition. So I wrote up a business plan for a fake business. There was like a web design competition. There's public speaking competitions. It kind of just was built to teach business skills to high school students. And I got elected to the state board and I was their treasurer and I got to speak to 500 kids one year. So that was cool. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the in-between of business and computers? And I was looking through the college manual of of different majors where I wanted to go, which was Iowa State, and they had a major called MIS. And when I toured it, they were like, yeah, MIS is basically that that marriage. It's business and it's IT, and you basically become the go-between in like, you know, big projects between the technical people, the engineers, and uh, the higher-ups and execs. You know, you could go all kinds of ways. You could do like programming, you could do infrastructure IT, you could do project management. I actually went into college knowing that like, that was gonna be my major. Most people I knew didn't really know for a couple of years, especially in business, because the, the curriculum was structured. So you do like two years of general business and then declare a major. I knew right away. I was like, I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna become, you know, I'm gonna do something in this MIS area, probably in infrastructure IT. Even though it was based on an assumption that was incomplete regarding stuff like calculus, did you mm -hmm. actually end up enjoying it? Was it actually useful for you? That's a complicated question. I enjoyed parts of the curriculum, though when I look back on it, my favorite class, and I think the one I got the most out of was actually public speaking. Hmm. Um, but I, I enjoy the curriculum. And in fact, like I've been remodeling my basement over the past couple of weeks. And when it came time to run ethernet and terminate all those connections, and you know, when I had to set up a server for my YouTube business, like that stuff is fascinating to me. I do like it. But I think I had a misconception about what most of the jobs people are getting coming out of this major. I thought that, you know, going into IT, especially if I kind of specialized in networking, that I would be going around huge corporate campuses, wiring up servers, running cable, and like that is a job. It's called like structured cabling or low voltage cable data install, but that was not what my major covered at all. So when I, you know, started looking for internships, I ended up getting an internship and they asked me like, you know, we think you could basically go wherever you want in this company. So just kind of pick your specialty. And I said, I want to get into networking. So they put me in the networking department and I quickly learned that my job involved sitting in the cubicle for eight hours a day, basically not having to do any physical activity whatsoever. Uh, and my job in that internship was making tweaks to the corporate firewall. So essentially my job was to block Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny because like that being my job, I figured out all kinds of little ways around those blocks when I wanted to use certain things. <laughs> I remember my boss coming out of a meeting and he's like, hey, we just had a meeting about um, whether the company should block remote desktop websites. And he had like a stack of printouts. He's like, I've got the logs here for like, you know, employees that are using remote desktop websites. It's, it's like a half inch thick stack of log entries. And he's like, you know, about half of these are you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't against the rules, but I'm like, well, if I can't use Facebook on the corporate network, I'll just remote desktop into my own computer and use Facebook. But the long, long and short of that is 
I really did not like that job. Coworkers were great. They were super supportive. But the job itself was not fun. And I, I drew some very important lessons from that. Number one, uh, that job was all just maintaining existing infrastructure making changes to a firewall. I didn't like that. I also was not running cable and I wasn't building servers. You know, I learned and I kind of knew back then that if I really wanted to do that, that is a job. You can go be a network architect and that's a bit more creative or you can literally go get a certification in structured data cable installs and server installs. That's like a whole specialty. The funny thing is you really don't need to go to a four-year university to do that. That's like a certification. You could probably go to a two-year program to, to get certified in that. And the other thing I realized though, is I am a naturally creative person. That's another aspect of myself that I'd always either suppressed or ignored. I remember growing up, my brother was always the artistic one and he was so good at drawing. And I would kind of just like tell myself, oh, you know, I'm not that creative. I'm, I'm a business guy. I like, you know, math and writing and things like that. My brother's good at art. So I think that's another thing that sort of subconsciously pushed me into business school. Also the thought that, you know, like art school doesn't pay very well, all that kind of stuff. It sort of uh, coincided with me, me doing this internship that I didn't like that I had been running this blog called College Info Geek. I don't wanna say it like took off, took off. It wasn't huge, but about a month before I went into the internship, it did get a little mention on Lifehacker, which brought in a few thousand people in a day. And this was on a blog that normally would get like 50 visits a day. So it was kind of like going to space for me. I, you know, I was like super, super excited about that. And I spent every spare moment during that internship summer just writing extra blog posts or tweaking the website, building my own thing. And so it was like this perfect storm of, you know, being in one period of time where I learned both that I did not like this IT job, at least this specific IT job, but also I really liked running my blog. And the conclusion I drew from that is, oh, I like to create, not maintain. I need to do something where I can make new things, not just maintain things that somebody else has already set up or that I set up and now just have to care for. You know, luckily for me, the blog kept going well and then I added a podcast and now a YouTube channel and now Nebula and all this kind of stuff. So I get to create for a living, but that wasn't certain back then. All I knew was I do not want to sit in a cubicle for eight hours a day maintaining firewalls. I need to do something where I'm building something. Let's uh, roll back for a second because I want to know what was the spark that led to you creating that blog in the first place? Oh, yeah. So I got into college. And for some context here, this was 2009. So, you know, right after the big financial crash of 2008 had happened. So that had put a bunch of worry in my mind. And then, you know, my dad had been laid off from a couple of jobs for various reasons. So I went into college with this belief that the working world is insanely competitive and everyone is basically going to be like Harvard level, insane honor student. And if I don't work as hard and as smart as possible, I was going to be left in the dust. That's basically how I saw the world. And maybe that's how it is in places like Harvard. But, you know, going to state university, I quickly I quickly realized that people don't quite think like that. Uh, it is not that quite that insane of a work ethic, um, but that's kind of how I went into school. So I remember being in the public library in high school and I read every single college prep textbook they had, like The Naked Roommate, and there were some other ones I can't remember the names of. I wanted to be as prepared as possible. And that sort of translated to me going into college. I was looking for resources for how I could do better, work smarter, work more efficiently. Um, and I started reading Lifehacker, which is not only a college 
focused website. People who don't know, it's just kind of like a general self-improvement, but also tech focused, kind of like DIY focused website. And reading that led me to another one called Hack College. And uh, that was that was built by a guy who went to college in, I think, California. And I think he was about three years ahead of me. And it was basically the life hacker for college students. So it would have study hacks. It would have, you know, here's how to do your laundry better. Here's how to build a swamp cooler for your dorm room whenever the air conditioning's not working, like all kinds of fun stuff. So I love that blog. There was always this thing in the back, back of my head, like, oh, what if I could write for that? That'd be cool. And I didn't really do anything about it for a while. But one thing I really, really wanted to do as I came into my freshman year was I wanted to be a cyclone aide. So a cyclone aide is basically the people who give tours and who help freshmen, like incoming freshmen, get oriented, get signed up for their classes. They answer all the questions. They were these people in red polos. And when I was doing my college visits and my orientation, they were like the, the, the wizards who had all the answers. And even before I got into college, like on my tour, before I had even like committed to go to this college, I remember asking one of them, hey, how do I get your job when, <laughs> when I'm in college? Because it seems cool. And they told me how, they're like, hey, there's going to be an application process during fall semester. And if you get in, there is a training and then you do it next summer. So I applied, I got in and I spent the entire spring semester going through this class that trained me not only on everything I would need to know specifically about our university, but also just a ton of stuff about general student success. Like, what do you do if you get homesick? How do you study effectively? All this kind of stuff. We also got to hold little bags of drugs once <laughs> when the cop came in. Actually, that may have been for RA training. I, may, I got mixed up there. I did that. And so I had to learn like all this stuff about student success and I was taught it. And then near the end of that semester, the guys who had founded Hack College were like, hey, we're graduating and we're a for students by students website. So we've got some people on staff who are still in college, but we're leaving, there's a gap. So we're hiring new writers, send us your resume, uh, send us a LinkedIn if you have it and send us a sample blog post. And I'm like, I wanna do this. I just took this class. I know everything there is to know about succeeding in college. So I spent the whole night writing this this blog post for them. And then I sent them my LinkedIn. And I think I had read a, a post on there that was like, resumes are old and boring, send LinkedIn profiles instead, which is kind of hilarious now because everyone hates LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> I sent my LinkedIn, I'm like, hey, I've got this great LinkedIn profile, no need for a resume, but here's my blog post. And the, the editor, Shep, uh, got back to me and he's like, hey, we got tons of applications, yours was great, but unfortunately we uh, can't take you on as a writer. And I'm like, okay, I understand, but I have this whole blog post that I wrote and I don't want it to go to waste. And I, I think at the time I had a WordPress site that was literally just a journal of like what I was doing as a student. I think we had this fun little project where a friend and I were trying to get a picture in all 180 buildings on campus. So I had built a WordPress blog for that. So I kind of knew a little bit about building a WordPress blog. And then I had this little bit of HTML experience from building the band website that I'd never listened to. So I took what I knew, I set up a little WordPress website. Uh, I couldn't really think of a name. So I'm like, College Info Geek will work. Whatever, I'll change it later if I need to. And uh, I put up that blog post. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. So that was kind of the genesis. You know, it just started as like a summer project because I, I got rejected. So, you know, if you can't join them, beat them, I guess. And I was running it throughout college. It went through different iterations, different design iterations. I was solo at first. And then I think a couple of months afterwards, a friend of mine was like, hey, you know how to build a blog. Can you teach me how to build a blog? And I said, I could, or you could just blog with me. So I had a partner for a while. Uh, he only wanted to write about Android and Linux. 
that was it. So for a while, College Info Geek was like half college tips and half like Android and Linux tips. And then he moved on and I was solo for a while again. And then at one point I had like a staff of uh, like, I think, 10 different guest writers, people who are just like, yeah, I want to blog too. And what I learned from that is most people who say they want to blog uh, want to have blogged. They want to say they have blogs, but they don't actually want to blog. They don't want to write, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was very funny. I'd have like this sidebar of staff writers and be like, this guy, one post, this guy, two posts, Thomas, 300 posts. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually they all just sort of left to their own volition or they would just stop submitting articles and I wasn't going to chase it down. So it eventually came down to just me again. And, you know, after about a year of running the blog, that's when the life hacker mentioned happened. And uh, then I spent the whole summer during that internship just writing like a madman. Like some months I would do 30 posts in a month, post a day, just doing whatever I could to grow it. And it was a great experience. How did a blog became everything else that eventually became your career? Like what was the progression there? So it was the blog first. And uh, then in 2013, I added the podcast. I remember going to a conference called Blog World in New York City. I actually turned 21 on the plane, but it was a red eye. So I didn't have a drink on the plane. And, but I was at Blog World and there was a, a guy named Pat Flynn who I've become friends with now, but he was sort of like one of my heroes back then. He had a blog called Smart Passive Income. And he used to put like how much money he would make every month in the top and be very transparent about how he'd make it. So he was like the guy I was following. And he had a podcast and he had a talk at Blog World where he said, you know, it's funny, I get more traffic to my blog than the podcast. But anytime somebody comes up to me at a conference or if they recognize me on the street, they always mention the podcast. They're like, hey, I, I feel like I know you. The podcast is great. I love listening to it. It just forms this emotional bond that is so much stronger than what a blog can do. I had kind of wanted to start a podcast before that, but that was kind of what really lit the fire for me. So I promptly spent six more months hesitating because I was too afraid to speak into a microphone. <laughs> And then I got myself a Blue Yeti microphone. And in January of 2013, I waited for my roommates to all leave one day so I could be totally alone to speak embarrassing things into a microphone. And I, I made my first episode. You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. What is up? Welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast, episode number one. I just had an outline and I just kind of went through it, ad lib. And uh, that was the start of that. I used, actually Pat had a podcast tutorial that I followed to get it up on iTunes and all that. And so that was the podcast and I did that for about a year and a half. And I guess one thing that I want to stress there is the reason I started the podcast is because I listen to other podcasters and I'm like, hey, I like what they're doing. Well, I kind of want to do it too. And that's the exact same thing that happened with YouTube. Though the funny thing is, I didn't get into YouTube because there was some other academic success YouTuber or productivity YouTuber. Back when I got into YouTube, those subjects were very, very sparse. There may have been a few people occasionally doing content on academic success, but really the landscape back then was you'd either have like uh, people who did more general content, maybe like beauty channels uh, who would do like, hey, here's a video about how I get A's in high school. All right, back next week to my regularly scheduled makeup tutorials and stuff. Or it would be 
Like somebody set a video camcorder in the back of a classroom at a college where a professor was doing an hour long lecture on study skills. There wasn't a lot. Uh, the only exceptions was our very own Simon Clark. Uh, he had his channel and I don't think he was totally focused on study skills, but he it was like, you know, sort of a mix between his vlogs on life. And I believe, uh, I believe he was in Oxford and then his friend Jamie was in Cambridge. I can't remember, but it was like that, but it was also, he had a whole series of like videos on how to get into Oxford. And some of that was study skills. And it was done in sort of like that vlog brothers style with at least better production than a camcorder in the back of the class. So he was doing it, but really not a whole lot of other people were doing it. Uh, the funny thing is like my inspiration to get into YouTube was gaming YouTubers and not like let's players, but people like Peanut Butter Gamer and Cat Icarus and, and Ego Raptor, like those people I watched a ton when I was younger. Greetings and salutations, my beautiful people, and welcome to the Cat Icarus Show, where I always have to do the duty of deciding whether or not things deserve to be slaughtered or salvaged. And oh, how I have waited in vain to talk about Peppa Pig. And I'm like, well, I do content on academic success, but I would love to do stuff in the style of what they do because I just love watching it. So that was sort of me getting into YouTube. The funny thing is, and I remember writing a blog post about this, like YouTube itself was not always the clear choice for platform for video. I knew I wanted to make videos, but there was like no inkling in my head that I would build up an audience on YouTube. It, it seemed like one of those impossible things. So really what I was looking to do was just add video to my blog to make the content a bit more diverse. And I remember looking into like a video hosting platform called Wistia, where you'd have to pay for hosting, but it had better analytics than YouTube did at the time. Um, I think at the time YouTube wouldn't even tell you how long people were watching and Wistia would. And then you could also do cool things like have an email sign up box come up on the video player after the video. So I was really debating and debating. I didn't wanna pay for Wistia, so I just, put my videos on YouTube. As I kept creating, I kept getting more and more into the community of YouTube and started feeling like, okay, now I'm sort of creating as a YouTuber, not just somebody using YouTube as a hosting platform. Uh, and I think it was my seventh video, which was very ironically a video that I, I made because I didn't have time to make the one I planned. <laughs> it was called, I don't feel like it is a mindset for amateurs, I think is the title. And it's like this three minute video basically just communicating the point that, you know, when you say, I don't feel like doing this, you're not actually physically prevented from doing that thing. You can still do it. I don't feel like it is a tragically common phrase for people who are students and for people who work in creative fields. And it's really something that limits your potential and that limits your productivity. I learned that lesson many times in like wrestling practice, or I just really didn't feel like doing it, but I had to. And the funny thing is I, I made that video because I was on a strict, weekly deadline with my videos at the time. And the video I had planned on making was just, I, it turned out to be way too ambitious. And it was Friday and I'm like, I gotta get something out. I'm just gonna speak on what I'm feeling like. I don't feel like making a video right now, but that doesn't prevent me from doing it. So I'm gonna do it. And that video went quote unquote viral on Reddit. I think the productivity subreddit and got 40,000 views in a day. So that was kind of like the video that sort of launched my channel. And I think I got a couple thousand subscribers and it was sort of the same thing as what happened with the life hacker mentioned back with the blog. I'm like, oh, this is working now. Let me put basically all my effort into this. It just so happened that that happened around the same time that I finished the book I was writing, which is called 10 Steps to Earning Awesome Grades. And that's a free ebook that people can download by signing up for my newsletter. So kind of blowing up on YouTube helped to continue building my blog on my email list because at the end of every video, I would say, hey, I've got a free book, you can go get it right here. 
So it just sort of like knitted everything together. Interesting. Wow, that, that was that was quite a journey. Since making YouTube was an afterthought or just a mechanism to adding videos to your blog, at what point did you start introducing yourself to people as a YouTuber and not a blogger? Ah, uh, that would probably have been when I started watching Casey Neistat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, okay. that was back in 2016, probably. There, there was probably a fair bit of hero worship there, but you know, he was like his his Twitter bio was "I'm a YouTuber," and that's it. I think that was the point where I was like, "Yeah, that's what I do. I create videos." You know, and I, it's not the only thing I do, but it's the thing where the majority of my creativity goes, and it's the thing I'm most passionate about. So I did start describing myself as a YouTuber back then. Uh, and I feel like it's only recently, like as we started to grow Nebula, that I've started saying like, I'm a creator, not a YouTuber. It's interesting seeing the shift we've had in our perception and relationship with YouTube, because, you know, five years ago, like YouTube really felt like a community. It's never been a specific one community. There's many different communities. Like there's the Vlogbrother community and there's all kinds of different ones. To me, it felt like, oh, hey, we're all YouTubers. There's a, there's a sort of community here. And it felt like after a while that that community feeling either petered out or just split up into a million different communities that no longer really identify with just like YouTuber. And maybe it's just that YouTube is too big. Maybe there's been too many adversarial situations between YouTube and the creator base. I don't know what it is, but it definitely feels like the whole vibe has changed in recent years. A lot of your content was based around the space of being a student. How did your content morph after you stopped being a student, after you graduated. The funny thing is my content morphed into being more for students after I graduated <laughs> for quite a long while. I remember that trip to New York City for Blog World. I was with my friend, Sean Davis, and I had just turned 21 and I was just going into my senior year of college. I remember walking down one of the streets in New York and having Sean be like, hey, you need to start thinking about an exit plan or a transition because you're going to graduate. And once you do, students aren't going to want to listen to your advice on student life anymore. I like had that in my mind and I was constantly thought about it. And I was like afraid of, oh, you know, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to become this old man and no one's going to care. And then, uh, and then what did I do? You know, I graduated from school and I started my YouTube channel. You know, I started it in 2006 with my brother, but I started making videos in earnest in 2014. So that would have been almost a year and a half after I graduated college. That's when I started making academic success videos and quickly learned, oh, nobody cares. You know, my story was, was totally live on my website. Hey, I graduated in 2013. I think a lot of people just assumed that I was a student anyway, because I was making videos on how to study. But you know, for three, four years, I made student focused content as somebody who wasn't in school. And I think that's totally fine. You know, in fact, it may have been even better because when I was in school, I was spending so much time actually studying. So I maybe would have been able to say like, here's what I do, but graduating and turning it into a full-time job, I had time to dig into the academic research on study strategies, on like what people in education science have found to be effective and found to not be effective. I had time to research like the forgetting curve and space repetition systems and all this kind of stuff. So I think my ability to create good content, both in terms of production value and good research was actually improved uh, having time when I wasn't 
trying to do my own schoolwork. Looking into the future, looking at the way you mentioned YouTube has changed and having the unique perspective of someone who isn't, for lack of a better term, a YouTube native, what do you see as the next future in the switch of platforms? What, what are your plans for where, where are you going to go next? Well, let me think about the answer because I want to say like it's Nebula because that's what we're building. And I do stand by that. But the truth of the matter is, as time has gone on, the internet has become more consolidated. I remember being you know, 11 years old and there was MySpace, there was Zanga, there was no Facebook, no Twitter. The internet was wild west back then. And there was all these different sites and all these different communities. And those still exist to some extent, but as time has gone on, the way most people interact with the internet and consume content is sort of consider their home bases have consolidated into a few different huge platforms, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the other ones are. So part of my strategy, which I think you would share is getting people to join Nebula, putting a lot of our content there, you know, it's building our own platform where we don't have to deal with algorithms and deal with different kinds of like censorship or the algorithm, you know, delisting videos or whatever it is, demonetization. And it's also our thing, you know, so it's, it's exciting to build it ourselves. And it's also very advantageous from a business perspective, but there's also a very good reason to be trying to build, build your audience on these platforms where the consolidation has happened. Uh, so YouTube is still a focus. Uh, I'm also trying to focus more on my Twitter and my Instagram right now without trying to split my time too much. But I do realize like, you know, it, there's a good business reason to build platforms here. I've redesigned my personal website, thomasjfrank.com to have a more of a content focus there. So I've been writing articles there occasionally and trying to direct people there. College Info Geek is still being run, but I feel like I've sort of moved on from targeting a specifically student audience. I'm now, I'm, you know, six months from being 30. I no longer have a passion for how to study for multiple choice tests. <laughs> <laughs> I care a lot more about just lifelong learning. I've sort of tried to separate myself a little bit from the College Info Geek brand and more just on my own brand and what I can create. And then I have a team who runs College Info Geek and that website is now just basically more SEO focused. And you know we find topics that we know students are looking for answers for and we'll create content around that, but it's no longer made by me. I guess that actually just leaves me with one last important question. For a lot of people that want to start living from their creativity or their content in some way, for a lot of the other interviews that I have done, the pathway always seems to be create something very unique and try to get that momentum going so you can build a YouTube audience. Mm. However, with your array of experiences, if someone with, wants to do this but is absolutely new at it, what will be your key advice on where to start? That's a really good question. You know, for context, my first income, well, actually my, my first income ever from the internet was from building websites for people. And I learned how to build the Zao website and I built my own websites in late high school, early college, I did freelance web design. The first time I ever made money without having to like hustle local clients, you know, I could find them myself. I was on a forum and this guy had like built a website on how to stop smoking. And I now realize like he was probably building like a scam website, but I, I didn't know better when I was that, <laughs> that young. But he, he was in the forum and he's like, I've got this stupid border 
around my website and I don't know how to get rid of it, I will PayPal $20 to anybody who can get rid of it. And I look at his code and I realize he had like, he had used table construction, which is a no-no in oh, web yeah. design. <laughs> that's, that's a classic old newbie mistake for web, from <laughs> HTML days, yep. Yep, and his HTML tags just had a border set. So I just sent him code for like border, none. <laughs> and it took me 30 <laughs> seconds and he literally, he sent me 20 bucks. And I was sitting in my dorm going, oh my gosh, I made 20 bucks for 30 seconds of work. That's like $40 a minute. That's like $2,400 an hour. Oh my gosh. So that was like my first real taste of like what freelance can do with the power of the internet. So what I've always said is, you know, if you want to make a living from your content, you need to start making content. But if you want to make money independently quickly, the fastest way to do it is through freelance. Find a marketable skill that you can have, that you have or that you can develop, and then start creating content, start creating a personal brand around yourself and that skill, and you can sort of jumpstart the process. Because I don't know many people who just started making content and then started making money from that content, like good money from the content itself really quickly. Even people who seem to have exploded out of nowhere, and I'll use Patch from TierZoo as an example. I think he told us he had like four different YouTube channels before TierZoo, and none of them took off. And like clearly, you know, you, you watch TierZoo and it's like, this is not a beginner making this content. There is a lot of practice that went into this. For reference, for listeners, you can try the episode that I recorded with Patch about his origins in TierZoo so you can learn the full story. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the crazy thing is, you know, we have these platforms now like YouTube and YouTube is the best example. Maybe TikTok is another example. I, I'm dubious on that one. But YouTube is, it's kind of miraculous when you think about it. We have a platform where number one, you can host high definition video for free, which is ridiculous. I mean, people like to complain about YouTube. Before YouTube, if you wanted to host video on the internet, like you're paying for it. And in, still with most places, if you're gonna host video, you're paying for it or you're, you're on like a limited free tier. What YouTube provides is kind of miraculous when you think about it from like a data storage bandwidth and delivery perspective. But not only is it free hosting for HD video for anybody who wants to upload it however much they want, there is an algorithm there. There's a content recommendation engine. And if you can get on its radar, it will push your content to more people than you could ever reach through tweeting and emailing and marketing and putting up flyers and whatever people used to have to do and buying ads. It's incredible. If you can make content that gets the attention of that algorithm and starts to build an organic following, like that's amazing. And once that happens, like you should absolutely be trying to exploit that as much as you can, because there's almost nothing that's gonna be better in terms of audience growth and then your, your potential for monetization. But the fact is, and any small YouTuber will tell you this, like there's a ton of survivor bias in the huge YouTubers who will say like, that's what you gotta do, man. That's what I did and now it's working well for me. But for, for every YouTuber who, who gets the algorithm to work for them, there's like 10 that didn't. And for the ones that did, it took probably a lot longer than, than you can see and often longer than they remember. For me, it was, you know, probably four and a half years. I started my blog in 2010. And there was four and a half years of skill development until that first video that actually went viral, went viral. It took me, I think two and a half years to make full-time quote unquote income, which was, you know, full-time living with roommates in Iowa where my expenses were very low. And then two more years to start building an audience on YouTube. And, you know, way before that, 
uh, even before I started my blog, I was making decent money actually doing freelance. So I guess the question is like, do you wanna make money on your own right now? Or do you specifically want to make content and make money off that content? And are you willing to just like do your job and, and have it be a side hustle uh, while you're waiting? You have to answer that question first and then you can start developing a strategy. Thank you, that was very, very thorough. You have a, ver uh, from all the people that I have interviewed, you definitely have a unique path. And I'm glad Wickle captured that on this episode. Yeah, this has been great. And yeah, you're kind of right, because I think most people that we know, or at least in our circle, they got their start on YouTube. But yeah, for me, it was the third stop. Maybe Rene is the closest I can think of to your path, but even that, yours is different. And actually, Rene may have a similar path to me. I'm, I'm, I would guess that he did writing, then podcasting, then YouTube as well. Yep, very similar. Thank you for everything, Thomas. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show, Alex.